grace, mercy, and peace be yours, dear brothers and sisters, from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and from the Spirit whom they pour forth among us. Amen. How incredible would it have been to be one of the disciples of Jesus who got to walk with and learn from and witness him during his ministry here in this earth. We have a song that we like to sing that we've learned since we were little kids. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what a wonderful gift that Bible is to tell us of the love of our Savior, Jesus. But how incredible would it have been to see that love in action. To be there in, and to witness Jesus healing the blind and the mute. Giving the ability to walk once more to people who were paralyzed. Cleansing those who for their entire life had been leprous. To witness Jesus driving out demons and raising the dead to life. It would be incredible, I think, first of all, to witness that power and to see that power displayed in front of your eyes. But better even than that, I think, would be to see the joy, the joy in the hearts of those people whom Jesus reached out and touched and brought healing to. It would have been fun to see Jesus interacting with people. And we will see it one day, don't worry. It would have been fun because when Jesus is interacting with people, it's not just people for him. This is Jesus interacting with his creation. This is Jesus interacting with his children, the children whom he brought into this world, the children whom he loves more than anything else. And so I think to be there, you would witness, you would feel and see this Warmth and compassion and love that's beyond anything that we've ever seen with our eyes. And that's no less true. That love is no less there in the text that I'm about to read to you in his interactions with this certain young man. The hard thing in the lesson that we're looking at today is that this young man wasn't ready for that love of Jesus. And so as he departed from Jesus, it wasn't with joy but with sadness in his heart. And we'll catch some of the reaction of Jesus' disciples as they were there with him on that day. We give our attention to the words of Mark chapter 10. Please stand once more as we listen to the words of our Savior Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. 
And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus loved that young man who came to him that day as much as any of the countless others who came to him with their ailments to be healed. But the difference was this man came and he did not even yet recognize what the ailment was that he had. He had a problem that wasn't physical, but a problem that was spiritual, a problem that was in his heart. And so when Jesus came to that man, or when that man came to Jesus, Jesus offered to him everything that he needed to be healed. He gave him that invitation to go and to get rid of all of his earthly attachments and then to come and follow Jesus as one of his disciples. But the man wasn't ready for it. He had great wealth that Jesus was asking him to leave behind, to give up and give away to the poor. Instead of following Jesus with joy in his heart, we're told his face fell and he went away sad. Jesus now had an opportunity in love to teach his students, his disciples who were still there. He told them how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were stunned by that. They were stunned by it because it flew in the face of what their society thought and believed. The, the presiding field of thought at that time was that wealth and health and prosperity were indicators of God's favor upon somebody. That if you were wealthy, that meant you had things together. You were doing life correctly. God was smiling upon you and blessing you. So if Jesus says it's hard for a wealthy person 
to get into God's kingdom, then who would it be easy for? And he came back once more. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not just for rich people this time. How hard it is to enter, period, for anyone. And then he compares it to something impossible. It would be easier, he said, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now they were really bothered. They start talking amongst themselves. They're, They're too embarrassed, maybe, or too confused to bring the question directly to Jesus. So it says, they ask themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus knew. He knew that they were asking themselves that question. He was waiting for it. And he had an answer for them. He told them, I think, with a smile perhaps starting to creep across his face. With man, this is impossible. But not with God. Because nothing is impossible for God. Jesus loves us. This we know. For the Bible tells us so. How much? How much does your Jesus love you? I think there are a number of indicators that we see in our lessons today that show us the depth of our Savior Jesus' love for us. The same love that he had for the multitudes that came to him while he was here to be healed. The same love he shows to this rich young man. That's the love he has for you. And how great is it? Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth. That's our first take home if you're following along on the sermon sheet. Jesus loves me enough to tell me the truth. And look at the truth. Look at the message he had to share in his word today. No one is good except God alone. It's a very simple statement, but it's a very heavy and profound statement all at the same time. No one is good except God alone. The young man had come with a question that I think many of us, maybe all of us, find ourselves asking, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that comes from God's law is, in order to be saved, you must be good. And not just mostly good, not even just more good than bad. In order to be saved, according to the law, you must be good, 100%, fully and completely good. But here's the truth, Jesus says. None of you are. And that wasn't just a one-time truth from Jesus on that day. It's one of the core teachings of all of the scriptures. It's woven throughout from Genesis to Revelation. If you go back in Genesis to the time of Noah, you hear God lamenting over human beings, these humans that he had created, 
He laments that every inclination of the hearts of men was only evil all the time. And he says that before he sends the flood, he says it's still true even after the flood. It's still true even of Noah and his family. And then in the Psalms, King David would write with words that would later be picked up by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, there is no one good, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. This first truth of Scripture, which you must take to heart and you must believe in your heart, is directed not just toward a sinful world out there, but is true of you yourself is that you are, by your very nature, not good. You are sinful. And your sinful nature has given way to all kinds of sinful acts of rebellion against your God. The sinful desires of your sinful human heart have latched on to things of this world, placing your trust in them rather than in your trust for the only God who can save you. And so the truth that we have to grapple with as we look at God's law is that on our own, if we wish to inherit eternal life by the merit of who we are and what we have done, it is impossible. But Jesus loves you. This you know, for the Bible tells you so. How much? Enough to make the impossible possible. That's our second fill-in. God loves you. God alone is good. And in his goodness, rather than destroy us because of our sin, he, he devised a plan to rescue us from it. Jesus came down into this world to live among his sinful creation, to live among his sinful children, and to redeem them. And so it was that on this day, as this young man came to Jesus, we're told Jesus was about to start on his way. Where is he starting out to? He's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem for a very specific purpose, one that he had already shared with his disciples twice. He told them that he had to go to Jerusalem where he would be delivered over into the hands of wicked men. He would be rejected by them. And after suffering many things, they would kill him. But on the third day, he would rise again. Through that great act of sacrificial love, Jesus would make possible for his children what otherwise for them would have been impossible. By his death and resurrection, Jesus would become the way through which his children would be able to enter into eternal life. And this is, again, not just a one-time teaching of Jesus that he shared with that man who came to him that day. This is the core teaching 
of all of God's word. From the very beginning, before even Noah, God had given the promise to that first man and woman in the garden that a Savior would come to restore their relationship with God. This seed of the woman would throw down the enemy. To Abraham, he promised that that seed would become a blessing for all nations of the world. Isaiah takes up the promise of that coming Savior. In Isaiah chapter 53, he paints a beautiful picture of our Savior who would suffer in our place. And then the Apostle Peter takes up his words and echoes them in his letter to the church. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. He loves me enough to tell me the truth. He loves me enough to make the impossible possible. And finally, he loves us enough to invite us and empower us to join him on his mission. He did it that day for that young man, but the young man did not accept the invitation. Jesus told him, go, sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure stored up for you in heaven. Then come, follow me. But there was something in his heart that got in the way. Something he was clinging to more than he was willing to cling to Jesus. For him, it was his wealth. For you, it might be something different. But I think it's a question worth asking. Is there anything in my heart that I am clinging to that is preventing me from taking this invitation of Jesus and accepting it? to come follow him and to be his disciple. Because if there is, then hear in your Savior's voice today an invitation to leave it behind and to come with him. On Pentecost, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit onto his disciples to empower them to take up that invitation he had given them. He poured out the Spirit on them, and then the Spirit was poured out through them as they got up and began to make Jesus' mission their own and to go with him into the battle that he had invited them to take the charge into. We heard in our lesson from Acts the beginning of a sermon that Peter preached to the people on that day, and I'm going to invite you to read the rest of Acts chapter 2 and get the rest of that sermon, whether it's this afternoon or sometime later this week. Read the whole sermon that Peter preached preached to those people. And you're going to notice two very familiar themes. First, Peter loved those people enough to tell them the truth, that they were not good. In fact, he accused them of something probably worse than anything else you could imagine. He said, you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus of Nazareth to death by nailing him to the cross. But God has raised this Jesus to life. Therefore, be assured of this. 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. His message was intended to do one thing, cut those people to their hearts and convince them that based on who they were and what they had done, what their actions had led to, the hope of salvation for them was an impossibility. And it worked. After hearing that, they asked, what then can we do to be saved? And then Peter was able to bring in that second theme. I wouldn't be surprised if a smile crept across his face as well as he's able to give them the assurance that Jesus had made what would otherwise have been impossible, possible for them. Repent and be baptized, he said, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all those who are here and for all who are far off. That gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of faith. It is the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit has brought, as we sang in our song, from age to age, from soul to soul, until it came here also to us. It is the faith that enables us to accept the truth that we are not good. In and of ourselves, we are sinful human beings, and if it were up to us, salvation would be impossible. It's the faith that led us to confess just before our sermon, I believe that I cannot, by my own thinking or choosing, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But it is also the faith that enables us to cling to the message of the gospel, that Jesus has given us the impossible. He makes it possible for us. It's the faith that led us to confess that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. And that gift of the gospel, the gift of faith that our Savior Jesus gives to us is now the gift with which he sends us out. It's the weapon, the tool that he arms us with to go out into this battle against the foe and to continue the mission that he's invited us to take up along with him. By that same gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work today through you, through his church and by your message as he continues to call and to gather and to enlighten and sanctify the whole Christian church on earth, one soul at a time, until the day that his work reaches its completion and our Savior Jesus comes again in glory. Lord Jesus, be with us as we join you on your mission. Amen.